Now, on this Invest Talk podcast, Justin Klein listens to your questions and provides unbiased answers. Whereas large industrials, they tend to ebb and flow with corporate R&D, corporate uh, CapEx spending, etc. And GE is certainly along the lines of that. The chart is definitely in a downtrend, and it's uh, it's definitely not cheap enough yet. Invest Talk, over 43 million downloads and counting. Your participation makes it unique. 888-99-CHART. This is Invest Talk, independent thinking, shared success. Justin Klein and Steve Peasley stand ready to take your finance and investment questions and share their unbiased answers. Invest Talk is made possible by KPP Financial, a registered investment advisor firm serving clients throughout the United States. The clarity for your path forward starts now. Here is KPP Chief Executive Officer, Financial Advisor, Justin Klein. Good afternoon, fellow investors, and welcome back to Invest Talk. This is our Wednesday, July 20th, 2022 edition. I'm Justin Klein, and I look forward to this hour with you, giving you my unbiased answers to your many and varied finance and investment questions. And I'm here to give you the facts and some perspective of over 20 plus years of investment experience and a lot of data that I have in front of me that will help me give you some some actionable uh, things to think about. Uh, I try to balance the pros and the cons, the risks and the rewards, and that's what you should do as well. And that's part of the tools that we try to instill in you each and every weekday, which is have a down-to-earth approach, not caught up in headlines or chasing returns, but understanding fundamentals and good businesses, good assets, and uh, how to asset allocate appropriately based on market conditions. So that's what I'm here to help you do. And this is an especially challenging environment, a very different one from the past several decades. You have higher inflation driven by uh, demographic shifts that uh, are dire in some countries, others fairly optimistic. Uh, You have ESG driving uh, the development of new resources as the input to our economies uh, shrinking. So that's a challenge that you have to uh, contend with uh, that's driving inflation as well. And then deglobalization and the geopolitical concerns that uh, we all kind of see. So all of these things mean that We are in a market environment that is a bit different and you need to know how to adjust your strategy. And so that's what I'm here to help you with. So I invite your phone calls and questions now to our anytime listener line, 888-99-CHART. You can do that live, 4 to 5 Pacific time, or you can call after hours, which I know a lot of you are listening on the podcast as well. So let's get right to our first listener question now. Hi, Steve, Justin. I'm calling from San Francisco, KDOW. I would like your opinion between these two companies, Stryker Surgical and Intuitive Surgical. What would be your choice? And also, what would be a reasonable entry point? Thank you. All right. Two medical, you call them device companies. I'll I'll call them that. Uh, Certainly a bit different. Obviously, Stryker is going to be 
more diversified. They develop uh, orthopedic implants, surgical instruments, neurotechnology, spinal and emergency equipment. So they're fairly well diversified within the medical space. Whereas intuitive surgical, they're more of a leader in minimally invasive surgeries and, and robotic surgeries. And, and they were the first and they don't have a really a great competitor uh, on that front. And so you you have a company that's done very, very well over the years, uh, just like Stryker, uh, but their business is or their, their profitability tends to be a bit steadier. Let's just say that over the last uh, decade or so. And so um, I, I like that um, o- overall. Their current return on best of capital is higher on intuitive surgical, whereas Stryker, that's been averaging uh, closer to the high single digits, whereas intuitive surgical in the, the mid-teens, mid to high teens. So uh, I, I like that. Now, Stryker is certainly going to be a cheaper, uh, about trading at 22 times forward earnings versus intuitive surgical, 44 times forward earnings. So the question is, are you okay with paying that additional premium uh, to to Striker? And in my mind, I'm going to say probably yes at this point. Now, I think there's merits to both. Uh, Two of is going to be more volatile. It's a large cap growth stock, whereas Striker is more of your bread and butter type of um, you know large cap core. They've they have decent growth, but not reliant on uh, like secular growth. So I think from here, it really depends on your risk tolerance level. Striker is going to be lower risk, and it actually it pays a, a dividend at one point four percent. To have surgical, uh, no dividend there. So it depends on your risk tolerance level. Like I said. If you're an aggressive investor, Intuitive Surgical after this fall is, I would say, reasonably priced. And Stryker, same thing, reasonably priced after this fall, but more of your consistent dividend payer, lower risk, lower volatility. The beta there is about one, whereas Intuitive Surgical is going to be 1.44. So it's about 45% more volatile than the overall market, uh, whereas Stryker is going to kind of move with the overall market. So both solid companies. Just depends on what you're looking for. Thanks for the call. Now, my focus point today is based on this question. Should you rent or buy a house? And this is from a real estate investor. It's uh, His rule is called Burl, which is buy, utility, rent, luxury. And we're going to dig into what that actually means and how to think about the buy versus rent debate and how that also feeds into real estate investments as well. So we're going to look at that story. I also want to touch on where sentiment is, sentiment in the market is, and this will be a good primer on how to understand when, even in rougher economies, uh, you can get rallies based on positioning within the market that is uh, overly bearish, and we're going to look at that. I also want to touch on SEC Gary Gensler's uh, recent comments in regards to China and their auditing practices. And then lastly, the banks have have started to release their earnings. And Bank of America had a pretty interesting insight into the consumer overall. So I want to touch on 
what they said. And so those are things that are on my mind, but ultimately I need to know what's on your mind. That's what's most important to me. So don't hesitate to reach out and give us a call at 888-99-CHART. Now let's take a look at the market today. It was up 23 points and the S&P was up 23 points, about half a percent move there. But uh, this was really a rally in the NASDAQ. The NASDAQ was up 184 points, about one and a half percent there. Growth certainly outperformed value today. And that was not a shock when you have that space oversold and you get a, a rally. Usually the negative positioning is most in those uh, companies that have been down the most. And meaning there, this is likely a short covering rally. And those can be swift and powerful, uh, but doesn't change kind of the long term trajectory, like we said, is value over growth. Uh, but you can have periods like you've had recently where growth does outperform. And this is an opportunity if you were caught flat footed to uh, and you and you um, overweight the growth side, overweight tech, and you're down a bunch. Well, you're probably seeing some of those positions rally. And this is the opportunity. Now, not necessarily today, because I think there's still a little more legs to this. But this is when you start to think about creating a plan. How do I rotate? How do I trim positions? How do I um, get out of these names as they rally and into things that have better long-term prospects? So uh, that's kind of the way I would think about the market right now. Uh, as we head into next week, about a week from today, will be the Fed meeting and their release of uh, their likely 75 basis point increase. Uh, but what's most important will be the rhetoric about the economy, inflation, and future rate uh, changes. So that's going to be interesting, uh, and we're going to start to kind of enter that phase of everything doesn't matter until the Fed speaks, and we're about a week away from that. Now, this is Invest Talk. I'm Justin Klein. We have one goal here on this program and podcast was to help you achieve your own version of financial freedom, and our work continues after this break. So get your questions in now at 888-99-CHART. Why do listener questions make InvestTalk better? Which of these would you recommend? Because each caller presents fresh questions in their voice. I was curious if you still think aluminum has a ways to go from here. When do I know the right time to take profits? Should I be looking for an exit? Should I be holding here? And listeners instinctively realize that InvestTalk uniquely offers a welcome dose of investing satisfaction. I think you have a terrific show, and I've learned a whole lot. Hey guys, love your show. Uh, I've been listening for several years now, and I've learned a lot. Justin Klein and Steve Peasley understand what investors need and want. I would look at it from a tax perspective. If there's no tax implications, move on, find better ways to use that money. I'm going with the odds. I think a half position now would at least get you in it and get you watching it so you won't lose track of it. Don't forget to call Investor 888-99-CHART. One of the most rewarding things I do each weekday is host the Invest Talk podcast. I truly enjoy helping investors, and I know that every question counts and every answer I provide will be unbiased. So as long as your questions involve the stock market or general investment topics and definitions, we set no limits. You, the caller, get to chart the course for each Invest Talk podcast. Justin and I are ready. Are you? Call with your questions anytime, day or night, 888-99-CHART. 
Hello, Steve and Justin. This is Art from Tucson. I've been exploring CEFs, closed-end funds, and looking at individual funds trading at a discount to their net asset value. There's quite a few that do. I'm using the CEF Connect website to screen different CEFs, and I found a CEF called Barring's Corporate Investors, NCI. I'm in- interested in it. It's at an 18% discount to net asset value right now with a Z-score of minus 1.8. I'd prefer a Z-score of minus 3, which is just a measure where um, it currently has, is as compared to its long-term discount value. So I'm looking for a negative 3 or lower on the Z-score. I'm also concerned that it holds below investment-grade corporate debt. Would this be something I should consider buying now? Should I wait or not even bother in this market with this fund? Be interested in what you think about NCI and CEFs in general, and I'll listen on the podcast. Thank you. All right, looking at Bearings Corporate Investors, MCI is the symbol. Now, this is a closed-end fund. It does have a very high expense ratio, 2.78%, so very, very expensive. Uh, now, it has a little bit of leverage, 10% leverage, and currently trading at yeah a discount of 16%. Its six-month average is uh, 12%. Three-year average is about negative uh, 4%. So, you know, it, it's, it's certainly, yes, trading well below its normal discount to th- that, that it trades at. Um, so... That's that's always interesting to me, and I, I agree that's something to to look at. I have a one year Z score of negative one point four three, so it's, I don't have it as negative three like you have it. Uh, but it, it is it is interesting. It does have a distribution yield about seven point nine percent. But the issue here is that it's in junk rated debt and very low junk rated debt. Uh, only three percent of the portfolio, or I guess call it five percent of the portfolio is in investment grade and the rest is going to be uh, junk and you know one thing i will say is i rather take credit risk over duration risk and let's look at its let's look at its uh, maturity schedule yeah it looks relatively short term so that's good most of it uh, matures within seven years so short term low uh low credit rating uh, which once again, I, I kind of like that setup. I rather, I rather take short, take credit risk than duration risk. So overall, I'm going to say this is something that looks attractive near term and I might buy it for a rebound to get kind of close to its uh, net asset value because it is trading at a pretty sizable discount. However, a couple things. The price is very expensive, 2.78%, very expensive for a bond fund. So not something I would hold long term because that's going to be a big, big drag. Number two is these are junk rated bonds. So what is the real value of what is the real NAV are how liquid are these bonds? And is it actually reflecting a, a, a price of bonds that should be trading lower, it's just they're not being traded. That happens a lot where uh, low rated, uh, low traded uh, debt, sometimes it doesn't get traded for a month or two months 
because there's no one there to buy it. And then therefore, is it really worth what that last trading price was? Because the last trading price was three, three, 30 days ago, 60 days ago, 90 days ago. So that's the worry here. You'd have to dig into the portfolio and really understand that. But I think that's the, the those are the two risks, the fees and the fact that maybe that 16% discount to NAV is not as attractive as, as you would think. Now we're going into a break. And on the other side, I will dig into my main focus point. Should you rent or buy a house? And we're going to talk about the Burl rule, which stands for buy utility and rent luxury. And... We're going to discuss how you could avoid financial regret, especially in this market. So I'll break that story down next. This is Invest Talk at 888 chart Each day, Invest Talk listeners submit their finance and investment questions via phone or email. Would you like your question to be put near the top of the list? Just take a minute or two to leave a review and rating for Invest Talk at iTunes. And be sure to include a brief question with your iTunes review comments. Now let's turn to my main focus point today, which is should you rent or buy a house? And this is the age-old question and hotly debated. Now a lot of people will say that renting, you're just throwing money away. And, you know, there's, there's an argument to that. Uh, there's also the argument that you're paying for flexibility, you're paying for the stability of your monthly outflow that you know you're going to be paying as opposed to owning, you know, that air conditioning can go out. It could be, you know, major problems that you need to fix uh, that cost a lot of money and changes your monthly outgo uh, versus, versus renting. And that's... That's a debate that'll go till the end of time. But when we look at the numbers and your needs, that's what's most important. And now if you're taking on debt to buy a home, you're doing that to live a better life more than you can afford with cash. And that's how most people do it. And there's nothing wrong with that as long as you have a long-term view of the asset and the utility of that asset. Uh, I think when most people get in trouble is when they buy a house and they only expect to live in it for a short period of time and are unsure about you know the, that house and, and how long they'll, they'll really stay there. And that's where I see most people uh, get into trouble. Now, the rent versus buy question, and this is uh, coming from a real estate investor, is a rule that he coins, which is buy utility and rent luxury. A good example of this is uh, a Toyota. Camry will get you from point A to point B, no no frills and relatively inexpensive, but it's consistent and dependable and you would buy that versus a Ferrari, which is fun. You don't use very often. It's a luxury. You would probably want to rent versus owning it. Okay. So that's the way to kind of think about um, a, a home is that if it is far more expensive for you to own it, than to rent it, then you should probably rent. There's a lot of real estate investors that they they deploy their capital into areas of the country where the yields are a lot higher. And the general rule is what you want to buy a property at 1% uh, where, the, where the rent is 1% of the total purchase price. Now in this market, that's very difficult. 
There are some in the Midwest where that is possible, um, but that's a, a general rule to kind of try to hit. And if you can do that, then you're going to get nice return on your money. Whereas in your local market, if that number is far off, then it might make more sense for you to rent. For example, I live in Laguna Beach and typically renting here is a lot cheaper than owning. And so if you're not sure that this is exactly where you want to live, the right neighborhood, the right distance from the beach or whatever, you probably want to rent and be patient on finding the exact property that you really want to own for the long term. You can build equity and you can, uh, it's, it's worth it to pay that extra premium to purchase over the cost of renting. So that's where you need to, that's how you need to uh, think about these things. So if you... Uh, if you want to go luxury and you don't have the, the down payment, you can feel comfortable knowing that you're likely paying a lot lower than your cost of actually owning it, which is, which is typical. Um, now, if you live in New York, Los Angeles, on, on the coast, basically, uh, getting to that 1% rule can be very, very difficult. Uh, but that just means that you need to be even more patient, even more judicious to find properties that are uh, fitting your needs longer term if you're going to play, pay, once again, that premium to own. Uh, and that's the way to think about it, uh, especially in this market where the market's weakening. Uh, prices are likely to come down. I think we're going to go back to levels of prices around 2017, 18 as long as we stay in this 5 to 6% mortgage rate uh, area. And that's likely what's going to happen uh, over the coming many months. You're already seeing a slowing activity, uh, price cuts, uh, deals falling through, right, falling out of escrow. And these are signs that people can't afford it. They, they're, they're more, uh, they have more trepidation about where the, the economy, the, the, their job is going, the, the market is going, et cetera. And that is, these are conditions that will manifest in lower prices later, depending on your market, depending on where you're at, areas like Austin, Texas, Phoenix, Arizona, Boise, Idaho, uh, parts of, of Florida, uh, you know, th those are probably going to be the weakest markets because they went up so much well above the income levels of the general population. So, um, you know, there, there will be pockets of weakness, some pockets of strength, but generally it's going to be a weak housing market for a period of time as long as we keep these higher rates. All right, now in the next and best talk, the story behind this question. Will ESG underperformance be its undoing? Now, investors might be willing to pay higher expense rates as long as they can earn higher returns, but ultimately they will focus on ESG underperformance, especially as of late. For years, ESG did very well, mainly because it was overweight tech and suddenly tech is not in favor and therefore ESG funds are also underperforming. So we're going to dig into that story tomorrow, and I think it's very important to understand this because ESG is a lot of fluff, a lot of sales pitches, but not a whole lot under the hood, and it's been papered over with a better performance, but not anymore. I'm Justin Klein. I'm ready to take your questions live at 888-99-CHART. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? 
And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It is official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. At this point, I think almost everyone has heard how generative AI promises to bring us to the next industrial revolution. AI is already shaping society with an impact on daily life that echoes the transformative significance of electricity or the internet. As we take steps to embrace the potential of generative AI, we need to remain vigilant with regard to its exploitability. This is where HackerOne comes in. HackerOne's AI Red Team addresses the novel challenges of AI safety and security for businesses that are launching new AI deployments. The HackerOne approach involves targeted offensive testing by harnessing the collective skills of ethical hackers who are proficient in AI and prompt hacking. In short, AI red teaming is the practice of stress testing AI models and deployments to make sure they can't be tricked into providing information beyond their intended use, and that security flaws can't be exploited to access confidential data or systems. HackerOne seamlessly integrates with your existing tools to enhance communication and collaboration across development, security, and IT teams. So, stay ahead of the game in the battle against cyber threats with HackerOne's Attack Resistance Platform. Learn more at HackerOne.com. That's H-A-C-K-E-R-O-N-E.com. HackerOne.com. The market is constantly changing, and you've got to be ready to react. You'll have questions. Steve and Justin have answers. The Invest Talk Anytime listener line never closes. 888-99-CHART. We're going to go talk to Trace, uh, Tracy. Uh, she's in Orange County. and wants to talk to Tr- oh, sorry, Trisha. And she's in Orange County. and wants to talk about Citigroup. Hi. Hi. Do you own it or looking to buy it? Hi. I'm looking to buy. Looking to. Uh, I don't have any like banks um, in my portfolio, so looking to add a position. Um, and then I was looking at Ally and City Group. Okay. Well, Citigroup is definitely one of the more volatile uh, bank stocks throughout uh, its history. Typically, takes higher risk than some of the other banks that are out there, and that means it's once again its results are going to be more volatile. Now, earnings last year were $10.14, so that's expected to drop 30% this year to $7.09, and another 2% next year below $7. Now, even based on $7 in earnings, it's still, it still would be relatively cheap, talking about uh, 
about seven times, four, seven and a half times uh, forward-looking earnings, which is which is pretty cheap. Uh, and I know that they are pretty competitive right now on their mortgages, and that's uh, helping them gain some market share. So, uh, and that and the relative strength here compared to the uh, KBE index is giving me some optimism in the near term. Uh, now, long term, you know, I think there's better banks out there. I like the regional banks better than the the, the large banks. Uh, a lot of it has to do with capital ratios and the cost of cost of capital there. Uh, so. Of the banks, this is not my favorite longer term. Near term, though, like I said, the outperformance is uh, certainly an interesting uh, takeaway, especially after this uh, recent earnings report with revenue up 18% year over year. So near term, I'm going to give Citi a thumbs up, but it's not something that I would hold long term and be my main allocation to uh, the, the banking index or banking sector. Excuse me. Thanks for the call, Tricia. Now, when people take the time to leave an Invest Talk podcast review on iTunes, we like to thank them for their courtesy by getting to their questions quickly. And the Puma 51 said, can I contribute to both a Roth IRA and my company's Roth 401k at the same time? If yes, does that put me in a lower federal tax bracket? My custodian's fidelity, if that makes a difference. Answer to the last one is does not make a difference who your, who your custodian is. Uh, but yes, you can make a contribution to your Roth and Roth 401k and Roth IRA, assuming you aren't, don't make too much money because there are some uh, income limits there on the Roth IRA side. Uh, so definitely more of a question for your CPA to make sure you're not over those limits, but you can contribute to both. And for most people, uh, that's a better way if you want to max out your retirement savings, Roth 401k, Roth IRA, a great way to do that. Uh, now, will it put me in a lower tax bracket? The answer is no, because remember, any Roth contribution, whether that's an IRA, whether that's a 401k, is not tax deductible this year, meaning you won't pay taxes in the future on any of it. You can even take out the initial investment, initial contribution, penalty-free until uh, you know over the long term. Uh, but it's not going to lower your tax bill today. If you want to lower your tax bill, you're going to contribute to a traditional IRA or traditional 401k. That's what's going to lower your ultimate uh, tax bill. Now, will that put you into a lower tax bracket? Once again, depends on what that write-off is, depending on uh, what your income is, whether that puts you into a lower tax bracket, something you should talk over with your tax professional. Thanks for the review, the Puma 51. All right, now let's pivot over to sentiment and some pretty interesting sentiment indicators as of late. And asset managers, hedge funds, they recently stepped up their bearish bets on stocks to the highest level since 2016. And there was a lot of fear then, you remember the market around that time that we were going into a recession. And this is based on data from JP Morgan looking at futures uh, on major stock indices. Now, the average active investor has lowered their exposure to stocks throughout this year and dropped their equity allocation to one of the lowest levels since the start of the pandemic. This is according to the National Association of Active Investment Managers. And a survey of consumers' expectation by the New York Bank, uh, New York Federal Reserve Bank of New York, uh, they showed that two-thirds of U.S. consumers expect stock prices to stay flat or go down over the next year. That's the highest percentage since they started doing the survey in 2013. And 
This is just showing that sentiment is pretty washed out. Sentiment is very negative. And in that scenario, even a mild catalyst like a potential Fed pivot can spark a strong rally where not only individuals chase, but institutions chase as well. And estimates by Deutsche Bank show that investors have steadily decreased their exposure to stocks to the lowest level of uh, uh, in the past 12 years, excuse me, past 12 years since the financial crisis. And a lot of this has to do with systematics funds that buy and sell based on past volatility. And what happens here is as volatility is increasing, which it has basically since the fall, these, these funds tend to take down their exposure to equities because volatility is elevated. What happens when stocks start to go up and volatility starts to go down, then they start to add back exposure in a big way. And that's what you're starting to see now where the VIX has actually made a series of lower highs since February. And now first time today made the first lower low as well. So the trend there in volatility going down is going to be bullish for stocks and these, um, these, 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 uh, these funds that are going to add back exposure as volatility kind of calms down. And uh, I think that's what's the most interesting thing is that risk parity funds, uh, these, what are they? Uh, their futures, uh, trend following uh, strategies, all of these things are near the lowest levels of exposure to equities in many, many years. And what that means is if you do start to get a rally, it will build on itself. And those funds will start to add back equities. And a lot of times these bear market rallies are more systematic than have anything to do with the, the fundamental backdrop uh, in, in the economy, in the market as a whole. So understand that as well. Short term flow dynamics into and out of equities that are have very little to do with the underlying fundamentals of companies and, and the economy often drive uh, short term moves. So be aware of that and know that a bear market rally could have some legs due to this. Let's go to Sammy in San Francisco looking at Google. Um, uh, hi, Justin. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. I'm calling in to get a good entry point uh, onto Alphabet. What's your view on that? Okay. Well, we just had the stock split on Google. We talked about that. Shouldn't be uh, what you should. Uh, used to to buy it. Now, my issue with Google right now is a slowing economy means that they're going to be highly exposed to the ad market and the downdraft in the ad market. And this is something they haven't really had to deal with for pretty much their history because there's been secular tailwinds of growing ad spending within the, 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 the online space. And now that they are online ad spending is something like 60% of advertising spend, whereas 2008, it was, I think, eight or 9%. Uh, it's basically going to be driven by the broader economy. And that's the issue and why Google's earnings expectations continue to come down. Expected to be $5.47 this year, but uh, uh, and earnings expectations for next year are being downgraded. The chart doesn't look very hot. Uh, I would go, uh, we're looking at support right on $95 per share. It's at 114 uh, right now. So 95 and change, that's the next big support level on Google. Thanks for the call. 
Now, there's no denying that the investment environment has changed over the past year or so, and investors are experiencing a level of volatility, and many are smacked in the face with the reality that their rosy expectations of growth stocks and, and, and story stocks and exciting names uh, were, were nothing more than a fantasy. And a lot of those valuations are coming in. And the price of real world uh, stocks, tangible assets are suddenly going up for the first time in a long while due to geopolitical concerns, etc. And this inflationary environment brings a set of challenges that you need to be prepared for. And if you need help understanding where you're at, whether you are positioned rightly for uh, this coming market uh, trend, then I encourage you to reach out to myself or, or Steve Pease at our company, KPP Financial, where we operate with the same philosophy, which is independent thinking and shared success. We provide unbiased guidance both on and off air, and we practice parallel investing, which means we invest right alongside our clients. So to take advantage of our free portfolio review assessment via telephone or go-to meeting, just send, them a, send us a message through investtalk.com or call our office at 800-557-5461. We'd love to help you in any way. Now, Steve and I have said many times that we appreciate our diverse Invest Talk audience. And in fact, we receive caller questions from around the world and across America. So let's take a question now, this time from Pennsylvania. Hi, my name is Donald. I'm from Pennsylvania. Uh, I call the show from time to time. I was looking at a stock, NXP Semiconductors, and I think I'm early to this, although I believe it is a good purchase around $150 range if I can pick it up there. I was wondering about your comments on the company, if you could give me some insight as to that uh, being a, a good uh, play in the reshoring of this particular industry into the United States. Just interested in any insights you might have on this. Thank you very much. Talk to you soon. Bye. All right, this is NXP Semiconductors. It's a leading supplier of high performance mixed signal products, so digital and analog. And this, they acquired Freescale Semiconductor in 2015, and they have a huge market share in automotive. It supplies microcontrollers, analog chips into all the different things that control the car, powertrains, infotainment systems, radars, etc. And they serve industrial, internet things, mobile, and communication infrastructure as well. So well diversified and a good, consistent uh, grower. Now, 2019, they were struggling. They earned only $0.85. Cents. That was down from $6.72 in 2018. And that was up from fifty-eight cents in twenty sixteen, and that's down from five dollars and sixty cents in twenty fifteen. So what you can see here is that this is a a very cyclical type of industry, and this business is not any different. It is uh, prone to the economic um, whims uh, as well as uh, the over and under supply of capacity within the sector as a whole. And if you look at things like return on invested capital, you can see that it uh, it, has, it dip back in 2020 and uh, 2016 into the, the low single digits. But 
Longer term tends to be in the low teens, 10, 12%, which is, which is solid. Um, so I think this is a fairly good company. Uh, I, I like what you're looking at within the, the semiconductor space. I like that they're diversified, more focused on the industrial um, inputs, which are using more and more microchips, uh, especially cars. So I like that. Nice 2% dividend yield as well. Uh, so I'm going to give this one overall a, a thumbs up, although I don't love the sector as a whole quite yet, because I do think there is some overcapacity that they're going to have to deal with in the medium term. So thanks for the call. Now let's touch quickly on what the what SEC Gary Gensler is saying about the China auditing bill. And this took effect in 2021. And this was a bill that was forcing China to, or Chinese companies, to live up to U.S. audit standards. And this was a three-year time clock, meaning that when it took effect in 2021, they had until the spring of 2023 to comply with the regulations. And Congress is even weighing a bipartisan legislation that would bring that deadline up by a year. So spring of next year, that would bring it at to less than a year until these companies are delisted. And the SEC has identified 150 Chinese listed companies as currently non-compliant following the, lease, the release of their latest annual report. Companies like JD.com and Pindadao, uh, Yum China Holdings, uh, etc. So there, there's a lot of them. And the recent quote from Gary Gunzer was, quote, it's quite possible that there is no deal here. I'm not particular confident, particularly confident, end quote. And this is, they, they've been in negotiations uh, for a while now, over the last few months. And this would, this would, I think, throw a big wrench in Sino American political dynamics. Uh, these are companies worth combined tens, if not hundreds of billions of dollars. And this is a great way for the Chinese companies to raise capital. And if they are delisted and they cannot list on the US exchanges, the NASDAQ or the NYC, et cetera, that is a funding source that could cause problems within the country. Now, the main dispute is in regards to the fact that China says these audit requirements is a threat to national security. But U.S. officials are saying that audit papers should not contain any sensitive data. And that's true. These are just broad holdings and confirming uh, the, the broad transactions, that the transactions are real, that the assets are real. And unfortunately, China doesn't agree. And so... It's another example of how if you're invested in Chinese companies listed here in our exchange, understand that this is coming down the pipe. And if they get delisted, they are extremely difficult to sell. So you need to be selling before this happens. We're heading to our final break. So give me a call now at 888-99-CHART. You heard about Riskalyze. It's a brief question and answer form that you fill out online. 
Steve Peasley and Justin Klein will also get a copy of your responses. They can use the Riskalyze results to help you formulate a strategy that fits your investing risk tolerance. Learn more anytime and take the Riskalyze quiz at investtalk.com. Hi, Justin and Steve. Hope you're having a good day. Long-time listener here from Minnesota. Love the show. Hey, I have a little bit of free cash right now, and um, the market kind of trending upward. I don't want to miss the boat here, so to speak. I'm looking at a couple companies. I was wondering if you could tell me which one you feel is maybe a better choice. I believe they both pay good dividends. One is a ticker symbol STWD. I believe it's Starward. And the other one, the ticker symbol is ARLP. I believe that's a coal company. They both pay good dividends. I think they're slow growth companies, but uh, which one looks like a better choice for a long-term dividend play? Thank you, guys. Look forward to hearing your answer on the show. Have a good day. Oh, this is one of the easiest questions I've had in a while, and this is ARLP, Alliance Resource Partners. That is a masculine partnership which does sell coal to uh, utilities and industrial users, and the demand for coal continues to go up. Uh, it's an energy company, right? So if the cost of natural gas goes up uh, worldwide and even here in the U.S., then coal prices go up, and uh, the new supply of coal because of ESG has been limited. And so if you have that coal, uh, which is our cheapest form of, of energy, then or one of the cheapest at least, then you're going to print money. And that's basically what has happened with uh, ARL, ARLP. Now, no, it's a masculine partnership. It's going to be taxed at your ordinary income tax rate, but so will the income from STWD, which is a mortgage rate, very different and historically uh, more of a value destructor and in a rising interest rate environment that's going to struggle uh, mightily. So uh, I'm definitely not a fan of STWD, but ARLP, I'm going to give a thumbs up. So thanks for the call. Now let's pivot to bank earnings and focus mainly on Bank of America. This was end of last week, a bunch of banks reported earnings, JP Morgan, Wells Fargo, Citi, Bank of America, et cetera. For B of A, uh, profits fell 32%, but revenues were up on strong consumer demand, strong borrowing. Revenue was up 6% year over year, about in line with expectations. And they released a about 40 million in funds set aside for future losses, which means that the credit situation of their customers actually improved slightly. You would think based on what happened with the, the market and the economy over the quarter, that that wouldn't be the case. But consumers are keeping up with their, their payments very well, and there's increasing demand. Credit card spending rose 17%. And... There's two ways to look at this. One is they're confident in their ability to maintain their job and they're borrowing more. That's partly true. Also, they, for many, because of inflation and the fact that their incomes are not keeping up with inflation, they're having to borrow more in order to kind of meet their, their monthly demands. And that's really what you're seeing, uh, I, I think, is a better explanation here. And the fact that delinquencies remain very low is because people still have jobs. Yes, 
the job market is weakening. The jolts report, jobs openings are, are certainly down. Uh, but overall, unemployment is still very, very low. And that's why people are calling for a dire situation for the economy. Well, I think parts of the economy are certainly weakening, but the job market is is not at a at a in a dire situation. And until you get unemployment north of five percent, you're unlikely to get an economy that is super weak. And a lot of people point to the banks, and the banks really have a pulse on this. Why? Because they look they have a deep insight into customer deposits, which continue to go up and what they're spending on. They talked about consumers spent 41% more on travel and entertainment in the second quarter, 42% more on gas, which would be expected. Now, their uh, Bank of America's interest income was up, but what was down, which was investment banking fees. Same with JP Morgan, down 54%. Morgan Stanley, 55%. Citigroup, 46%. And so that caller earlier asking about Citigroup, another reason why I like the regional banks is because they don't have uh, an investment banking division usually. And so a lot of these big banks, even if it's not a Morgan Stanley and a Goldman Sachs, which are pure investment banks, uh, the large banks, JP Morgan, Citigroup, Bank of America, they have large exposure to that revenue. And when rates are up, IPOs aren't happening, new bond issues aren't happening as much, their, their, their profits suffer. So uh, that's why we like the regional banks over the big banks. I'm Justin Klein. This completes another Invest Talk program. Steve Peasley and I thank you for listening. We encourage you to tell your friends and family about our free podcast downloads and its official Invest Talk download count has now exceeded 43.5 million thanks to you. And you can tell your friends and family about them, which they can find our free shows anytime at iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play. And be sure to rate and review on iTunes. And if you leave your question with your review, we will prioritize your answer. Independent thinking, shared success. This is Invest Talk. Good night. Invest Talk is a trademark of KPP Financial. Because of the nature of the interactive dialogue inherent in the format of this program, it's important for the listener to understand that not all comments made will apply to them. Specifically, nothing said shall be taken to be investment advice, or shall statements on this program be considered an offer to buy or sell security. Because such advice is rendered solely on an individual basis and at times will require that the investor review a prospectus before investing.